hope you have your Bibles and that you'll turn in them to Matthew 8, verse 1 is where we'll start in just a moment. That's page 813. We moved finally from page 812 to page 813, and as we have reached chapter 8, I report to you that we now have only 20 chapters to go. Just a few weeks ago, our family went to a place called Urban Air. You ever heard of it? It's kind of a trampoline adventure park. We went there for our oldest's 12th birthday, had some fun jumping around, playing on trampolines and other bouncy type situations. Had a great time as a family, all of us did, for most of the time until towards the end, being the uh, not quite as young as I used to be, man, I sprained both of my ankles. One at a time, not at the same time. First the left, and then a few minutes later, the right. And I became totally sidelined and debilitated and unable to continue in with the family fun. It really was kind of a bummer, sitting there on a, on a chair trying to elevate both of my ankles while the family ran around and continued to have fun. I wished I could have continued to participate in the fun that everyone was having. I was wishing that I hadn't taken that one step on that one spot that turned my ankle, and then wishing that I hadn't got up and tried to walk around even though one of my ankles was weak and my right ankle was going to overcompensate, wishing that I could be even somehow healed of this and then joined back in the fun. I would have loved to have been healed and not feel that pain anymore. And in our passage before us, we see that the Sermon on the Mount has ended, and Matthew is now moving into a section where healings are taking place. Several accounts of Jesus' healings. Here we are going to have nine miracle stories in three groups of three, in these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, and verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8 is the first. But as we go into this section on healings, as much as we can relate to desires to be healed in our own lives at times, we need to remember that Matthew has a big point that he wants to get across as the author of this gospel. His big point in this whole thing that's going to be the same throughout the entire book is that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King of the Jews. And so even as Matthew is recording Jesus' healing power, he is still making a case, as it were, for Jesus' kingship. He's putting these healings, these miracle stories, forward as evidence for his big point, that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the King. For Matthew, the issue of Jesus' messianic and kingly authority was of massive importance as he made his case that Jesus was the promised Messiah and should therefore be followed and embraced at all costs. And thus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records what? Do you remember? Look one verse before our passage for today. Two verses, I suppose. We could do 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. The crowds were astonished because of Jesus' teaching as one with authority. And that's a big point for Matthew. So he records that the crowds are astonished at his authority in chapter 7, verse 29. And now he moves into these records of Jesus' healing power, exercising his authority over the effects of sin, and guess how the people respond to it. Look forward at Matthew 9, verse 8. Matthew 9, verse 8. You might not even have to turn a page. This is after some healing accounts. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to a man. They were amazed at these displays of authority, and that's a really big deal for Matthew as he writes this gospel, making the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah and therefore should be embraced and followed at all costs. But there's something else in these next two chapters that also display Jesus' authority 
as Matthew continues this account of the arrival of the unexpected kingdom. These accounts of healing in chapters 8 and 9 are broken up by strong and authoritative calls to discipleship. And so, even though we're not in one of those today, I want to point it out at the very beginning of this section. These calls to discipleship also follow Matthew's goal of communicating that Jesus must be followed and obeyed. So between each miracle story here, there are narrative interludes that focus on the call to discipleship. And these displays of healing in, these, in this next section, intermixed with these calls to obedient discipleship, are not any less powerful, any less important than the teaching message that Jesus proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount. We had a wonderful time in our fellowship group this past week discussing some of these broader issues of the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, in the Hearst's home and, and, and with our group. And as I was studying this passage, I was, I was moved, I was uh, impacted by the thought that these displays of healing and calls to discipleship should not be regarded as somehow lesser than this Sermon on the Mount, even though the Sermon on the Mount is its own unique and vitally important thing. Matthew is still seeking to communicate the same thing. Jesus has authority, and you must follow him. So we've moved past the Sermon on the Mount, but the heart of the message is the same. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of the unexpected kingdom and must be embraced and followed. And so here again, a call to follow Jesus. And in this group of healing stories, in chapter 8, in our passage for today and following, there are three different kinds of people that we see Jesus healing. And each of them would have been regarded by the Jews as someone disadvantaged regarding their status in the kingdom of God. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to see this leper. He would have been banished from the community because of his uncleanness. In verses 5 through 13, there's a Gentile that Jesus interacts with who Jesus then commends for his faith. This man was outside the kingdom people of God. And even in verses 14 and 15, there's this woman who in that time would have been regarded socially as less in the people of God. And Jesus cared about all of them. The leper, the Gentile, the woman. The leper's restored to society. The Gentile's commended for his faith. And this woman is cared for by the Messiah. And then how the section ends in verses 16 and 17, is very important for us too. Read that with me. We'll we'll get there in more detail soon. But verse 16 talks about how people are brought to Jesus and him, at the very end, healing all who were sick. And verse 17, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Ultimately, it was many whom Jesus healed. And he did all of it to fulfill what was foretold, that the Messiah, the promised one, the authoritative sent one of God would take on the sicknesses that sin brought and defeat them. And so that context is important for us as we look at verses 1 through 4 and as we progress through this whole section of these, these miracle stories. Because we need to see Our passage today and each individual part that we'll go through as parts of a much larger whole. Matthew seeking to get across his message that the promised Messiah is Jesus. That Jesus is the one with authority to speak God's words. That Jesus is the one with authority to heal the sick. That Jesus is the one with authority to call disciples and demand their obedience. Jesus is the promised Messiah. So with that in mind, with that context in our minds. Let's just read verses 1 through 4 again, even though Brandon read it for us just a moment ago. When he came down from the mountain, that is after the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, 
I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. These are the words of the Lord. Jesus finished his great sermon, and there's this crowd, understandably, that's following him. And then suddenly, onto the scene bursts, and I do mean bursts, this leper. I mean bursts because this would not have been expected. Whether this man literally revealed himself after having hidden in the crowd, or whether it happened a a little bit later, it's certainly a bursting onto this scene that Matthew is recording. I personally think the man was part of the crowd and then revealed himself because Matthew says, behold. And in our context, that might be like us saying, and guess what happened? Check this out. And so onto the scene bursts this leper. How do you think the crowd would have responded when a leper burst onto the scene? It is not unlikely at all that there might have been screams of terror. Some of the traditions and colloquialisms of childhood have lasted from my generation into the next. Rock, paper, scissors is going to last forever. I still hear kids singing birthday songs, you look like a monkey and you smell like one too, right? I think you guys still do that. I remember Jinx or owe me a Coke when you say the same thing. That one has morphed into somehow Jinx, Blackout, Waterfall, owe me a Coke. I think that's it, right? Right? Yeah. Oh, there's more? Paul says there's more. He's an educator. He hears them all. And there's one called Cheese Touch that I've seen my kids interact with other kids in this church and kids at their school. Cheese Touch is a silly game that basically operates under the rules that if you're touched by someone with the Cheese Touch, you now have the Cheese Touch until you pass it on to someone who doesn't have the Cheese Touch. It's kind of like tag, but if you have your fingers crossed, you can't get the Cheese Touch. It can be frustrating when you're trying to play Cheese Touch and everybody's got their fingers crossed. We played this as a family on our vacation this summer in various locations out and about and had some fun with it. For us, cheese touch is about as close as we can get to even conceiving of an idea of what it would be like to have leprosy in our context. But in reality, it is a horrifically poor comparison because cheese touch is a silly, ridiculous child's game and leprosy was a matter of life and death. Leprosy isn't something we talk about very much in our society, in our day, but did you know it still exists? The World Health Organization just reported this year that 208,000 cases of leprosy exist in the world today, most of them in Asia or Africa. Reportedly, about 100 people in the U.S. per year, too. But here's the thing. Today, we have multi-drug therapy treatments that include various kinds of modern antibiotics that can treat leprosy. The Cleveland Clinic reported that in the last 20 years, 16 million people have been cured of leprosy through these means. Praise God for that. But lepers in ancient Israel and in Palestine in general didn't have multi-drug therapies or antibiotics to deal with their leprosy. And so lepers in ancient Palestine usually died lepers after a long and grueling life with this horrific disease. I don't know how much you know about leprosy, but it was not pretty. Leprosy would affect the color and texture of skin, even have a a foul odor that came with it. It brought usually a raspy throat because of damage inside. It destroyed nerve endings, which led to lost tips of fingers and toes and often broken limbs because of not being able to feel the cuts and bruises or the the heaviness of something or the heat of something. It was awful. To be a leper, to get diagnosed with leprosy was essentially a death sentence. I'd like to show you just a couple of Old Testament passages that will help us better understand this scene that Matthew is painting for us. And I'm going to have you turn there. Turn to everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. Just a few verses there. 
Here is what a person with leprosy needed to do. Verse 45 of Leviticus 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is what people who had leprosy were destined for, more likely, better said, doomed to. This is far worse than a silly game of cheese touch. And no one has their fingers uncrossed that you can pass it to. Turn, maybe you don't even have to turn. Look down at chapter 14 now of Leviticus. I'm going to read several verses here. This is what was needed to be declared truly and fully clean if you were somehow healed. Leviticus 14, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read several verses here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he is to be cleansed, shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair, bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with a log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that is on the left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of his right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood offering of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. If you think that was long in detail, there's more, but I'm stopping there. This goes on to talk about contingencies that the Lord graciously provides for. This is what was needed in order to be declared truly and fully clean if you were somehow healed. A detailed, meticulous process to bring about cleanness. But here's the thing. The people of God, if you survey the rest of the Old Testament, did not view leprosy as something that you were normally healed from. What took place, what was, what was prescribed in Leviticus 14 verses 1 through 20, was not some sort of common thing that was happening every day. I mean, if you just, you're in Leviticus, just look over at Numbers briefly. This will not be nearly as long of a reading, but since you're there, Numbers chapter 12 verses 10 through 12. 
You remember what happened to Miriam when she opposed Moses? Numbers 12, verses 10 through 11. Miriam has opposed God's servant Moses. The anger of the Lord is kindled against her. And verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Moses and Aaron were under the impression that Miriam was done for when she got leprosy. That's just one example of several in the Old Testament history where someone gets leprosy and the idea around this leprous person is not, well, eventually you're going to get healed and then we'll go to the priest and everything is going to be fine. No, it was much more common that people were not regularly healed. They would have to be miraculously healed. Fast forward to the time of the Roman occupation and the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth in Israel. And medical science hasn't advanced much. Leprosy is still a huge deal. Lepers are still banished from the community. People are still terrified of getting it. It's still viewed as an almost certain death sentence, unless somehow that one was miraculously healed. And so here we have in Matthew 8, this leprous man somehow finding out about Jesus. What must this man have heard? What might this man have seen? Perhaps he saw Jesus from a distance. Perhaps he heard him from a distance in the sermon. Perhaps he snuck into that crowd during the sermon because of other things he had heard. Maybe a family member with whom he had kept contact with informed him of of the arrival of this man. Whatever it was, because of what this man had heard Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount, or whatever he had heard about what he had done before then, this man believed that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore believed that he could heal him. Or because he had heard of what Jesus had done earlier in his ministry, you could look back at Matthew 4, verses 23 through 24, where it says that Jesus went about healing a bunch of people. He somehow had the impression that Jesus could heal him. So the leper leper arrives on the scene looking for help. And as I said earlier, I mean, I'm not a gambler, but if I was to lay even money, I would lay even money that if there were people around him when he arrived, there were screams. Jesus, look out! That man has leprosy. Get away! Surely this man would have known that he would get this kind of reaction. For however long he had had leprosy, he was used to having to stay away from people. And on the chance that he some, somehow, some way would have been near to someone, they would have reacted this way or similarly. And he was to announce his presence to people, saying unclean. So he had to have known that approaching Jesus came with some kind of risk. What if Jesus turned him away? What if the people beat him away with sticks or stones? So this man's approach to Jesus must have been one filled with faith. Perhaps a trembling, quivering faith, but faith. Why did he approach Jesus knowing that it was a majorly risky thing to do? It's because the leper believed that Jesus could heal him. That's the first of five observations I have for us in this text. The leper believed that Jesus could heal him. Look at what he says in verse 2. If you will, you can make me clean. He didn't say if you can. He says if you will, you can. So somewhere along the way, he's having this conversation to himself, something like, against all odds, against my better judgment, so help me, I'm going to go see if this man will heal me because I know he can Not see if Jesus could, but see if he would. You can make me clean, the leper said. He knew Jesus could 
heal him, whether because of what he had heard or perhaps what he had seen. Either way, he believed that Jesus could heal him, and so he took a massive risk and approached him to see if he would. For a lot of us, approaching Jesus does not require any risk, at least not like this. Many of us in this room grew up even approaching Jesus, even at the dinner table in prayer or family worship time, kneeling at our bedsides perhaps, earlier this morning in our children's Bible classes, and so on and so forth. But there are many in this world, even at this very moment, who have to seriously consider whether or not they're going to approach Jesus in faith because it requires great risk. It's going to mean social ostracization. It's going to mean banishment from their family. Might even include physical persecution or death. But you know, for some today and in our context and culture, approaching Jesus in faith carries a risk of a much different kind. Because, as we've already seen, approaching Jesus in faith, listen carefully, requires the denial of self. That is a risk for us, or at least we think it is. It requires total submission to the king. It requires giving up your own human identity in one sense to take on his. It means letting go of selfish desires or dreams or hopes and conforming to his. It means getting with the program, his program, not making up your own or following someone else's. And so it is true universally. That approaching Jesus in faith is a risk. But friends, it's a risk worth taking, as we'll see. It's a risk that the leper took. He went up to Jesus, probably with people screaming in terror, and he said, I mean, can you imagine maybe even in tears, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And that's the second observation, that the leper asked Jesus to heal him. He believed he could, and he asked him if he would. He literally, the text says, verse 2, the leper came to him and knelt before him. He literally got down on his knees and begged. Kneeling in this context, in this time, was an act of worship. It was no accident. It was deliberate. Perhaps the idea of kneeling is a little more in our sensibilities right now because of everything going on in the British Empire. But we don't do much kneeling here in our society. But imagine walking up to someone and just dropping to your knees. And he says, I know you can, but will you? I think we see clearly this man believed that Jesus was the promised one of whom it was said that he would come to save his people and heal their diseases. And so kneeling before Jesus and asking for healing was a kind of final step in this tremendous act of faith, approaching Jesus in faith, believing he could heal him, and then asking. He believed, and that belief led to action. And isn't that so essential to our approach to Jesus in faith? I'm just going to take the opportunity to ask you, oh, my friend, have you ever asked Jesus to save you? You may believe that he can, but have you asked him if he would? What about if you already have? What about as a believer? Do you ask in faith for help, for healing, for grace, for strength? This man did. But this man is not the main character of the story. Jesus is. And so what is Jesus' response to this leper's faith-fueled request? Look at verse 3. Right in the middle. What is his response? I will. Jesus said, I am willing. That's the third observation. That Jesus 
was willing to heal the leper. The leper came in faith, he asked in faith, and he got good news. Jesus was willing. The leper's faith was met with grace. This guy knew that Jesus could heal him, but he didn't know for sure if he would, so he asked. And I know that some of you may be wishing that these words would come to fruition in your life with the diseases and sicknesses that you are fighting and suffering from and that others that you know and love are fighting and suffering from. You know Jesus can heal, but will he? My friends, I wish I had clear and guaranteed answers for you on what exactly God's plan is for your life, but I don't. I do know that he can, and I know that if it's his will, he will. And that is just one of the hardest parts of the life that we're called to as kingdom ambassadors and kingdom emissaries of this state of being part of the already but not yet kingdom of heaven. John Calvin said this about the leper. This leper was so fully convinced of the power of Christ as to entertain no doubt that it is in his power to cure leprosy, but uncertain as to the result because he did not yet know the will of Christ. And that's just where we live as created ones. We are not the creator. And I just want to say that. And I know it doesn't give you some great final aha moment answer. My friends, we don't know the will of Christ, but like the leper, we continue to come to him in faith. But again, the leper is not the main character. And I don't actually think that the point of this passage is that Matthew wants us to see that having faith that Jesus can heal you is important. I mean, that certainly is true. But the point that Matthew is making here is that Jesus has all power and authority. And that as the king of his kingdom, we must all embrace him in faith, like the leper did, and then trust him as king and trust him as savior. Clearly, this leper believed that if Jesus willed, he could heal him, and Jesus was willing. If, as I presume, that Jesus' disciples and followers all screamed in terror at the sight and sound of this leper, it was for good reason. You know, all that stuff we read in, in Leviticus, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. And not to mention just the danger of getting leprosy and having to, to deal with that yourself. So it would have been totally understandable in one sense for these people to be deathly afraid of this appearance of this leper. In fact, it would have been unwise for them not to be concerned about this at first. But what did Jesus do rather than scream and run in terror? Just read verse 3 again. And just take this in. Oh, those of you who have read this passage before, take it in like you've never read it before. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And all the Jews around him are probably screaming something like, Jesus, don't touch him. This is a leper. You will become unclean. But what happens when Jesus touches him? Does Jesus become unclean? No, he does not. Look at what the text of Scripture says at the end of verse 3. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. When Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the kingdom of heaven, touches uncleanness, Jesus does not become unclean. The unclean becomes clean. Amen? That leads to the fourth observation. Jesus' touch made the leper clean. Oh, friends, think of it. How long might it have been? We don't know the details of this man's life, but how long might it have been since this man had experienced the touch of a person? How many days or months or years might have gone by without human interaction 
apart from perhaps a great distance, without relationships, without compassion, without tenderness, without feeling love. And then the first touch this man experiences after all that time, however long it was, was the touch of King Jesus. And that touch then made him clean. Oh, what a moment this was. Listen, my friends, when leprosy is touched by Jesus, the leprosy stands no chance. It goes away. When the king exercises his authority in his kingdom, he gets his will. Jesus was saying, I am the king. This is my kingdom. He willed that the leper would be clean, and the leprosy didn't stand a chance. Who knows what it even looked like? The Bible says that it was immediate. But who knows? Did he shed that leprous skin like a snake? Did the skin just reverse back to health immediately without even noticing what had happened? His hair changing color, his limbs growing back, this utterly miraculous event. No matter how it looked, this was the power and authority of Jesus on full display in that moment to however many people were standing around and to the astonishment of those people who had previously been concerned about becoming unclean. You know, it strikes me to consider that if Jesus had been a different Jewish rabbi, he would not have been either able or willing to make the man clean. Because even if he was able, he would have had to be concerned for proper ritual purity and then refuse to have anything to do with the man. But Jesus isn't just a Jewish rabbi. He's the king. He's the creator. He is the holy one. And my friends, Jesus can do what the ceremonial law for uncleanness in Leviticus could never do. The ceremonial law told Israel what to do when someone was healed and became clean and then going through this process of reinserting themselves into society. But it didn't give instructions for how to make someone clean. Only Jesus could do that. Jewish priests couldn't. There is no one who can make uncleanness clean other than Jesus. And friends, I imagine you know where I'm going with this. The stain and curse of sin affects everything it touches just like leprosy. It causes horrendous pain and suffering and damage just like leprosy. But my friends, when King Jesus condescends, comes down to a sinner ravaged by the leprosy, quote-unquote, of sin and its effects, and then touches that sinner, that sinner becomes clean. Maybe you're dealing with or concerned with someone you love who's dealing with a long-term chronic illness that has ravaged and broken what used to be normal. And we must understand this passage to mean that Jesus has power over that. You ought to read this passage and find comfort in the fact that Jesus can heal your disease, and in some cases, he will. And so then approach him in faith, asking, asking, if you will, make me clean, heal me. Believe that, ask for it, and submit to his will like the leper did. But, but, while we see here Jesus' real and serious concern for disease, for physical well-being of this man, we must remember that there is a deeper, worse, and more serious and eternal kind of disease that Jesus came to deal with. And that is the stain and curse of sin. And that's the point of this whole story. Listen carefully. Jesus' display of carrying our griefs, bearing our sorrows physically, was part of the plan to prove that he came to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows spiritually. You follow me? Don't misunderstand me. 
Jesus cared very much about physical healing on its own and for its own end as well. He did it all the time. There's passages that just say Jesus was going around healing a bunch of people. It doesn't say anything spiritual. So don't downplay the fact that Jesus' kingdom coming to earth very much included him pushing back the curse by bringing restoration to physical and earthly problems. But, my friends, if all Jesus did was go around healing physical sickness but never dealt with the spiritual need, we just have a lot of physically healthy people heading for hell. But Jesus did come to make unclean people clean. He came to bring sinners to God. He came to touch lepers, both physical lepers and spiritual lepers, like we all are, touching them with the miraculous power of his salvation so that we might be brought into his kingdom, be transferred from unclean, unclean to cleansed. We are spiritual lepers in need of the miraculous healing of our sinful hearts. And so while Jesus does care about your physical sickness, while this passage does bring hope to the sick, it goes far deeper than that. It's just the first in a list of miracle stories where Matthew is giving evidence to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one with authority over sin and its effects, and therefore he is the one that we must embrace in faith as this leper and others did. Just earlier this week, I was reading Mark's gospel with a, a friend of mine who's not a follower of Jesus. We were talking together about what we were reading in Mark chapter 8, about Jesus performing miracles and telling people not to spread the word, talking about Jesus hearing someone calling him the Messiah and not denying it, but saying, don't tell anyone. And he does that here too. Verse 4, right at the beginning. Jesus said to him, after this guy's been made clean, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I think this begs at least two questions. Number one, why would Jesus tell this leper to not tell anyone? Now that could be worth a whole E412 session or two. But here's what I'll say. Clearly, Throughout the rest of what we see in the Gospels, Jesus is not interested in gathering a large crowd of people with a desire to pressure him into displays of his messiahship through working wonders and putting on some sort of political or materialistic show. D.A. Carson put it this way in his commentary. I don't have it on the screens because it's so short. He came to die, not trounce the Romans. Jesus didn't come to gather a large crowd of wonderment seekers. And so it's just true that telling the leper not to tell anyone would have reduced the likelihood of large crowds just looking for wonderment to watch. In fact, Jesus says later in his ministry that he wasn't interested in followers who only cared about watching those wonders. He wanted followers who were committed to the narrow path and the narrow gate of his unexpected kingdom. So that's the first question. Why did Jesus tell the leper not to tell anyone? A big part of it is because he wasn't interested in just drawing a huge crowd of people seeking a show. Yay, the Messiah is here. Now Rome's going down. That's not what Jesus was here for. Number two, the second question, why did Jesus command obedience to the ceremonial cleansing process? Because he doesn't just say, don't tell anyone. He does say, go tell somebody, he goes, tell the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded. I don't think this could simply be to prove the importance of ceremonial adherence. There's a sense to which, please understand me when I say this, there's a sense to which Jesus had broken that by touching an unclean person. I mean, in a sense, of course, Jesus did submit to the law. His entire life, he obeyed the Father perfectly. Amen. But he, and he did, he came to earth and submitted himself to that society and that rule. He lived by it in as much as it did not hinder his mission. But the law was subservient 
to him. He is not subservience to the law in his nature. He is the author of that law. And so here's what I'm saying. I know this is a little bit complicated. I might say it a couple of times. The law gains relevance in direct proportion to its function of pointing to Jesus. The law gains relevance in direct proportion to its function of pointing to Jesus. So the law is effective and important in relation to its pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus wasn't saying, you know, I touched you and it looks like you're healed, but you're not clean yet. You've got to go through the ceremonial washing. No, that's nonsense. Jesus made this man clean. Jesus doesn't have only a little bit of power and someone had to go finish the job. No, Jesus literally made the man clean. What Jesus was doing, I believe here, was confirming his authority. The fifth observation. Jesus' power and authority was confirmed in this instruction. You could say it this way. Jesus was sort of doing due diligence, if you will. Because he told the leper to go tell the priest, offer, show the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I think there's a compelling argument here in the grammar for the them in, at the end of the verse being a different person or persons than priest. Priest is singular in the verse, them is plural. There's a compelling argument that Jesus is assuming that the man will eventually go tell some people and that there will need to be proof that his story is credible. So he may not just be talking about the leper's testimony to the priest because he knew what this leper would eventually do. And in fact, you don't have to flip there. I just have it on the screen. In Mark's accounts of this, chapter 1, verse 45, same story. The leper, it says, after Jesus tells him, go tell the priests and don't tell anyone else, he goes out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. And so Jesus knows this guy's going to go out. And someone known as a leper would not be able to just randomly, magically reinsert himself back into society without some sort of explanation and assurance to the people that were asking him that he had gone through the ceremonial washing, cleansing process, post-cure. And so the cured leper's conformity to the law confirmed the authority of Jesus. That's what I think is going on here. The leper's conformity to the law confirmed the authority of Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus was not confirming the authority of the law. He was confirming his own power and authority through the law, which was there for him to point to him anyway. Each one of these observations in this text points us back to the main point that Matthew is making, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king, he has the authority, that this kingdom had come, was breaking in, and that Jesus was the king of that kingdom, is the king of that kingdom. And the point Matthew is making is that this is the guy. This is the one that you must follow and embrace. You see, friends, as I wrap up here, we might think of total submission to the king with all that we are, with all that we have, embracing him with all of our hearts is something rather radical. But listen, friends, it is not radical Christianity to fully submit to the king. That's just basic Christianity. That's the starting point. Total, whole surrender and submission to the king is where it all begins. And then you move forward. Jesus is the king. He has all authority. How else would you respond? And so here is this first, in the first group of three groups of miracle stories where Matthew is pointing to Jesus as the king of the unexpected kingdom, as the one with authority over his kingdom. 
And so I'm just going to ask you this. Have you embraced Jesus as the king in faith? Have you embraced him as the one with authority? Has your heart responded to the fact that he has come to heal your spiritual leprosy and make you clean? If you haven't, turn to him in faith and embrace him today. Are you already a member of his kingdom through faith? Have you already had your spiritual leprosy cleansed by King Jesus? Then my friends, give thanks. Praise him. Spread the news about him. And live for him with all that you are for all of your days. Let's pray. Lord, for your goodness and your generosity in giving us all that we need, help us to praise you. In every circumstance of life, whether good or bad, help us to trust you. In love and in faithfulness with all that we have and with all that we are, help us to serve you. As we speak or write or listen to those near or far, help us to share you. In our plans, in our work, for ourselves and for others, help us to glorify you. And in every thought and word and deed, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live for you. Let's continue in prayer for a few minutes.